This is Jerry White. I'd like to introduce you to Sage Intact, a leading provider of restaurant accounting and financial solutions. Sage Intact helps their restaurant customers reduce time, cost, and resources on tedious financial processes so they can focus on servicing customers and growing their businesses. To learn more about how Sage Intact restaurant customers make smarter decisions with critical visibility in business performance, I invite you to get more details at sageintact.com forward slash hospitality. That's S-A-G-E-I-N-T-A-C-C-T dot com forward slash hospitality. Welcome back to Fast Casual Insider. I'm Jerry White, Associate Publisher of Plate Magazine and host of today's podcast. Today, we're talking with Paul D'Amico, the CEO of Naf Naf Grill, the Middle Eastern fast casual restaurant concept. Paul brings over 35 years experience and the best of both worlds to Naf Naf, combining his solid business and financial acumen with a degree from Johnson & Wales in culinary arts and hotel and restaurant management. The perfect resume for today's and tomorrow's restaurant leader. Nafnaf loosely translates to fan the flame, referring to an Israeli term of bringing family together to cook meats over an open flame. And Paul, I was just wanted to ask as an aside, because I love word games. I know that it means fan the flame. I was just wondering, is naf naf just fan fan turned backwards? I don't think so. <laughs> I couldn't help noticing that. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a bit of a, a coincidence. Okay, okay. I was just wondering about that. I thought maybe that was an American way of. It's, it's a great observation of yours, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But naf uh, naf was started ten years ago, and now with industry veteran D'Amico at the helm is ready to fan its franchising flame and grow exponentially. So let's begin, Paul. You joined the company as CEO just a couple of years ago. I think it was June of 2017, after a very successful tenure at Moe's Southwest Grill. Um, what did you see, or perhaps what didn't you see, going on at NAFNAF that really brought you over and interested you into this concept? Thanks, Jerry. Actually, my my two year anniversary was June twelfth, um, which which I, which ironically is International um, Falafel Day. <laughs> wow, <laughs> there's another coincidence. Sure, sure. It is a coincidence, and the other coincidence is my my anniversary um, at Mo Southwest Grill was a Burrito Day, and so you just you just I keep joining these brands with with International Days. I spent uh, seven almost seven years running Mo's. Um, and grew that brand from 200 stores to over 700. It was at that time that the, the private equity group Rourke uh, approached me and said, um, we want you to run Focus Brand. So I stepped out of Mo Southwest Grill, which was one of the, at that time, six Focus Brands. Uh, and I ran Focus Brands for almost three years. Um, Focus Brands at that time had roughly 5,000 restaurants with six brands under its, under its umbrella, under its holding company. It was at that time that Rourke um, was looking at NAFNAF. They had already made one investment in the brand and they were ready to make another one uh, because they really felt that this was a brand that was ahead of its time, ahead of its cuisine, um, and something that the industry hadn't seen yet. No one had started to see true Middle Eastern food. We, we watched Zoe's grow, um, and that was in the Mediterranean space. Um, 
but they really saw something in NAFNAF. Um, and it was at that time staying part of Rourke uh, that they asked me if I would, if I would come lead this brand because of my franchising experience. The brand at that time had roughly 25 uh, locations, all company owned. Uh, and the goal from day one of me starting here just two years ago was to get the brand ready to franchise. Uh, and it took us about a year and a half to put all of those pieces in motion. And we launched our franchising program just um, February of this year. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say that it's already started to have some pretty good traction. Okay. And, and Paul, would you say that it was the interest of growing this brand through franchising or was that equal to the interest in also a brand new, or not brand new, but certainly bringing a Middle Eastern cuisine into mainstream USA? I can't imagine that you were all that familiar with the product line of NAF um, NAF when you took over, um, were you? I really knew very little about the brand. And so I had to, before I made a decision to relocate to Chicago, had had to really do some homework. But something that I've never been able to do uh, in my career, had the opportunity to do in my career, was really take something that was a, a true incubated concept and get ready to scale it and then, and then effectively scale it into the hundreds of units. And so that is really what attracted me um, to this brand. Once I had the chance to come to Chicago and, and spend a few days touring the restaurants, I was, I was amazed at the level of culinary, not only the, the simplicity of what happened in every store, but the food quality was second to none in any of the fast casual segments. And so I got excited about it uh, and we made the decision to come to Chicago and take this brand and, and really start to grow it. In the first 90 days of launching our franchise program, we've sold over 30 franchises, which is, which is pretty good. Uh, and we've got another 15 to 20 that are, that are out for signature right now. So there's a, there was some real interest around this brand. Yeah. There's some traction there. Yeah. 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 Paul, were you able to uh, get to know um, NAFNAF's founder, yep. Sahar? Yes, Sahar Sander. Before he uh, passed away and able to talk to him a little bit about what he, his vision was? Yeah, I did. We, and we spent um, a lot of time together. Um, when I came in to take the brand and, and start to run it from day to day, Sahar was really my culinary advisor. He, is, he, is the, he was the young man that came here from Israel and back in 1995. Uh, with his grandmother's recipes, and he's the one that started this this thing called NAFNAF. He and I spent literally hours in the test kitchen, uh, so I could understand. Um, and I'm and I'm a culinarian at heart, but he wanted me to understand not just how pita was made, but how his grandmother made it. Uh, falafel was something foreign to me. I've I've eaten it, but I've never made it. And chicken shawarma, it was something completely foreign to me. I've never eaten it. And I've never built it. Uh, and so we would spend literally days in the test kitchen understanding not just the protein or the dough, um, but, but the spices really that made the chicken shawarma, right? Because chicken is chicken for you and chicken for me are the same things. The way we built the cones and the seasonings that we used are what made it authentic Israeli chicken shawarma. I see. Okay. And do you think it was the interest in different cuisines, especially Middle Eastern, that this uh, often referred to millennial generation or Gen uh, Z told you that, uh, hey, maybe this is about to take off here. As you watch the customers um, in our restaurants uh, and you see the variety of the demographic, um, you, can, you can tell by the age group and you can tell by the ethnicity for the hundreds of people that are online who are our true demographic is. And it's, and it's very broad. We like to say it's 
18 to 34, but I would, I would venture to say it's 18 to 68, uh, and, and every nationality, um, that you can imagine in a, in a downtown urban type environment. The, the food, uh, is, was, was something that we, we, we lead with and we, we talk about who our customer is and they are, um, curious Epicureans. And so these are the demographic that love bold flavors. They truly want to try something new. Uh, and they love authentic food, regardless of where it's from. And in NAFNAF, you watch the food preparation for all aspects of the pita, the chicken shawarma, and the falafel, the three core products that we are known for. The consumer watches those made while they're making their decisions to eat with us. I see. Okay. Um, so you're, you're, in your view, Middle Eastern cuisine, the American public was ready for that to take off, wasn't it? I think they were ready to graduate from what everyone considers a staple, which is pita in America and hummus, right? Costco and Price Club taught us what hummus was, and it's in everyone's refrigerator today. And I think the average consumer was ready to take it from that to the next level, which was really talking about chicken shawarma and, and falafel and those types of those Israeli products. Okay. And Paul, I know that uh, franchising is uh, certainly... Uh, well within your wheelhouse with your experience. Um, and as you look at the, uh, what may be coming for NAFNAF, I remember in a conversation we had uh, at NRA uh, with Jeff Alexander, he was talking about uh, how his concept uh, maybe is finding its way onto what we call on-site or alternative locations. Do you feel that uh, NAFNAF could fit into a college university or a business dining uh, aspect in some way? Yeah, absolutely. We had, we've already been contacted by Compass um, for their Chartwells, which is their higher education food service um, group. Um, the, the, the student body is, is craving it. They've started to develop some what I would call generic uh, Middle Eastern foods within the higher education in, in, the, in the generic food service. It's, it's not something that they can execute uh, at a very high level. So they, they've contacted us We've become now an approved Middle Eastern brand for their higher education, and now we and now we wait for the hundreds of food service directors throughout the country um, to evaluate the concept and see if it's something that they want to bring onto their campus. But it extends more, way more than just higher education. We're working on a location in Chicago Airport, in Atlanta Airport, um, and Minneapolis Airport. We think our brand will will lend itself beautifully to the speed at which you have to serve guests. In an airport environment, we've worked hard to take our footprint and, and get it from that 2,200 square feet down to that 800 square feet. And we believe we've got a workable model there. So we're excited to, to bring the brand into venues that will share with the masses that don't necessarily live in Chicago or in Minneapolis what NAFNAF is all about. Okay. That kind of uh, segues into kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about with you. We hear about this ubiquitous term disruption. I think that's kind of uh, all born out of the technology craze in the marketplace that's changing everything. Um, tell our audience the kinds of innovation you think are needed at NAFNAF to really get them ready for growth. What kind of technology, what kind of POS, what kind of uh, loyalty programs uh, are you looking at to really spur that growth? Yeah, I mean, the technology in restaurants, you know, 10 years ago was you had a cash register and a telephone, and that was 
that was about the extent of it. And today, the amount of technology that is in 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 what we call the box, um, the four walls of the restaurant, is is really pretty significant. And so you've got to have the talent to understand what is the right level of technology, and then more importantly, the GMs that you recruit need to be able to run with that technology. So there's there's a there's a there's a change in the dynamic of who we hire to run our restaurants. They might be great food handlers and great at customer service, but if they can't grasp the technology piece of it, they're not going to be successful because technology now is not just in the box in the form of back office and tools that the management team uses to run the business. The technology now is shifting to a form where it's actually driving incremental sales and you've got to be able to embrace it. So when you talk about loyalty, um, we, we have a, a, the NAF app uh, that has NAF perks built into it. Um, and we have roughly 150,000 customers that use that app uh, and that loyalty program every day. Um, our online ordering, our, what we call our digital sales. There used to be in-restaurant sales and catering. Now we have digital sales um, and in-store sales. And our digital sales are approaching 19% right now. And that is, that is a big percentage of sales. So when, when the industry at conferences tells you that they're going to be 40% in the next three to five years, I believe that. There are some that doubt that, but I believe it. I embrace it. And so I've made significant changes to what's happening in our restaurants to be prepared for that and to continue to prepare for that because we have to be ready to teach and help our franchisees. So a little bit about what we're doing differently within our restaurants. One, we're shrinking we're shrinking the size of the real estate. Um, our new square footage is probably going to be in the 1,800 square feet from 2,400. Uh, we don't need the number of seats that we used to have in our restaurants because the number of, of digital sales is climbing every month in, in all of our restaurants. So we're shrinking the box, which shrinks the rent and shrinks the capital expenditure. That's a good thing. We are putting in se- full second lines. Uh, so as you come down the line in NAFNAF and you, and you place your order with that guest, we don't want any third-party delivery or any online orders to be interfering with the guest experience. So there's a, a full second line in the back of the house where all of those digital sales get executed, right? So that we've taken that line and now we've put a we've put a metro rack in the in all of our dining rooms. So so we're we're looking for a completely seamless interaction when when DoorDash or Grubhub show up or you show up to pick up your online order. We don't want you to have to look for a manager, talk to an employee. You just go to the rack, you find your bag with your name on it, clearly printed in black Sharpie. You take your bag and you leave. So it's a, it's a, it's a frictionless experience for you to get your online order. So these are some of the things that we're doing to make it easy for the, the online customer or the third-party driver to access the food, get it out of the restaurant, and get it on the way to the guest. It sounds like delivery really is becoming its own day part, if you will. Do you feel that uh, delivery has also been one of the um, uh, the aspects of our business that is causing restaurants to rethink their footprint and say, you know, obviously we have fewer seats and butts now. Uh, so does that mean that we can devote more time to kitchen and less space to seating? Uh, are you noticing that as well? You've mentioned the word disruptor, and so delivery has been a massive disruptor in, in some in some positive and in some negative ways, right? It's it, it costs more money to acquire that customer now. Uh, so in our restaurant, if we had a hundred guests, um, ten of them now are ordering through third party delivery, uh, whether that's Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber Eats. 
10 of them don't come to the restaurant anymore. They're either staying home or they're staying in their office and they're ordering through third-party delivery. So that guest we have to hold on to. And so we want to hold on to that guest, but it comes at a higher cost, right? Because there's a delivery cost to get your food from the restaurant to that guest. The guest shares in that cost. We pay a portion of that cost, but it's an incremental cost to the acquisition of that customer. So that's that's a big portion of the disruptor. The other part of disruption when it comes to third-party delivery is yesterday, I had six restaurants around my office that I would normally go to for lunch. Now I have 600. Maybe I have 6,000 um, that I can sit at my desk. I can go onto their website or I can just go onto the marketplace on DoorDash's website and I can order from the Capitol Grill and get a chicken Caesar salad delivered to my office for about the same price as my restaurant's chicken shawarma hummus bowl. That was never in my decision-making set, but now it is. I'm eating more sushi at my desk than I ever have because sushi wasn't even in my realm because there was nothing around my office for me to walk to. So now now in order for me to hold on to my 10 customers, I've got to work harder and I've got to give them deals so that they stay loyal to NAF and they're not looking for the sushi and dining at the higher end restaurants and having it delivered to their office. This is Jerry White. If you're a restaurant looking to reduce time, cost, and resources on tedious financial processes while gaining better insight into business performance, I invite you to learn more about Sage Intact, a leading provider of restaurant accounting and financial solutions. Find out how Sage Intact can give you the visibility to help you grow your business at sageintact.com forward slash hospitality. That's S-A-G-E-I-N-T-A-C-C-T dot com forward slash hospitality. Do you actually interview these uh, third-party delivery companies to see which one fits your sales uh, model best? Or is it all driven by who the customers are using in the sense of, Grubhub or Postmates or whatever it is. There's two ways that we think about this, but to answer your first question, no, we we don't interview them. The decision to use a third-party delivery company is primarily um, decided upon when we find out who has access to our restaurants, where their three-mile radius is, and where our customer base is. And so you, you would think that today in Chicago, where Grubhub is headquartered here and has the lion's share of the business here, why we didn't choose Grubhub to be our third-party delivery company, we choose DoorDash. We chose DoorDash because DoorDash was the only one of the third-party delivery companies that would deliver to 100% of the NAFNAF restaurants across all seven states and the District of Columbia. And so as we start to market that we are now delivering and our partner is DoorDash, that is why we chose DoorDash for that, for that realm. Now, what happens over time is you know you're leaving money on the table because consumers are loyal to the third-party delivery companies, just like they are loyal to certain restaurants. So if I'm a DoorDash customer, I may not ever go to the Grubhub website and, and order on the marketplace. Likewise, if I'm a Grubhub customer, I may not ever go to Postmates. And so the, the goal there is to eventually play across all of those platforms once they are all integrated into our POS system. And today, only DoorDash is DoorDash is the only one that is fully integrated to make it easy for the in-store experience to execute that order. So what would have to happen, Paul, to make that integration possible? Um, is that a function on your end or would it be 
something you'd partner with with all the other delivery uh, companies. It's really a function of who is providing the what I call the plumbing to integrate them into what we have. Our, our POS system is NCR. We use Aloha back office. And so Olo, one of the leaders in this online ordering um, business today, uh, is, is the one that provides that plumbing for DoorDash to integrate into NCR and Aloha. All of the other providers are working with Olo. It's, it's a matter of time and cost to see how long they will take to make that happen. We could execute today all the third-party deliveries in all of our restaurants, but we would end up with a series of six or seven iPads in each of the restaurant, and that's just a massive distraction for the management team, understanding when all of those orders are coming in. Mm-hmm. I see. And do you ever foresee a day when the consumer, the customer, will be able to order through one third-party delivery an item from your restaurant and maybe an item from uh, another restaurant and maybe a dessert from a third restaurant and combine it all on one ticket? Yeah, I don't see it today, but what it's going to come down to is how far are those individual restaurants from each other and how much longer will it take me to get my food? Today, I can go on any one of the third party and I can place an order for a steak from this restaurant, a salad from this because it's my favorite and the best cheesecake from Eli's over here. Three different drivers are going to show up and I'm going to pay a premium to make that happen. But I, I have to believe over time where the technology allows these third-party drivers to geotag in a very small, maybe 100-yard area, if there's three restaurants together, that could very well happen. Yeah, right. And I think also of the consumer who's at home, when they talk about the uh, the vote and you know, if you've got, you know, three or four kids around the table and they say, wait a minute, I want this. I don't want that. You know, eliminating the uh, the no vote, if you will, and seeing if you can accommodate everybody, uh, which would be a good thing I would like to have. So um, going forward, what do you think will delivery mean, again, for the physical restaurant space? Do you think everyone will have a smaller footprint? I still think we're in the early stages of this. We, you know, we're getting ready, and maybe we'll talk on the next podcast about ghost kitchens and Kitchen United, right? Because we're 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 getting we're getting ready to to sign our first lease there, um, and and really start to get smart and understand what's next. Delivery happened four or five years ago, and it started, and everybody had to play catch up with it. Now we've got the ghost kitchen starting, and I want to be on the front end of that, and and I want to I don't want to be on the back end like we were on delivery. Okay. And do you feel, because uh, that was going to be my next question about ghost restaurants and uh, Kitchen United, and I was just wondering if you felt that that new concept would actually kind of fly in the face of some of your franchise plans in the sense that, well, maybe I don't need to be everywhere I think I need to be if I can get something going with Kitchen United uh, in some way. It is something that will absolutely um, complicate um, franchising. But while I have today, I have no franchise restaurants open. Um, while, while I will get them open towards the end of this year, I think in Chicago, which is a market that we own from a company store perspective, it's the right place to try and, and gain some knowledge around this, this ghost kitchen and how that works. It's a very interesting business model. It's designed for restaurants to see if their product or their concept is, is welcomed and accepted in a certain market. 
Um, that's one way that we're seeing the kitchens used. The other way is there are restaurants where their volumes are so great that they can't handle third-party delivery and can't execute catering. They're using the ghost kitchens to, to offset their busy stores and drive all of that third-party delivery and catering into the ghost kitchen. So there's lots of different models out there. I think we're going to focus first on third-party delivery with our ghost kitchen if we can get our lease done. And I'm excited about this because this is not something that's going away. Kitchen United is going to have 19 kitchens opened up um, by the middle of next year. And they're putting between 10 and 15 concepts in each of these kitchens. This, this, There's a significant um, amount of interest behind this. Okay. You know, and maybe if we could also, you know, pick up a notion on our discussion here and your feeling about the restaurant industry as a whole and how these new developments actually affect the core of what we know the role restaurants play in our society. Um, when you think about the word restaurant, I think it's a maybe a French term that actually means to restore. But one of the things that we've always known about restaurants is that uh, our industry, unlike almost everyone else, touches people in so many ways, so many times a day. Nobody else can do that. And I'm just wondering, as these concepts continue to grow, are we going to be losing touch with the customer, the consumer, who you know may best be opting not to leave his couch or his desk and take advantage of the restaurant experience that way? And what do you feel about that uh, going forward, Paul? I don't think we're at the point where all the restaurants we know are going to close. I, th- I think we're we're a lot of years away from anything like that, even even marginally happening. Um, what we see is for the lunch day part, um, and I think it's important that we break this down into day parts. What we fee- see for the lunch day part is that the consumer is willing to forego the experience, the atmosphere, the service model. And in many cases, the level of food quality that they were used to, to have a given product delivered to them in their office at a, at a premium price with delivery fees, right? So that's, that's an interesting dynamic for the millennial consumer that never existed with the baby boomers. The baby boomers wanted, they wanted high quality, they wanted high touch, um, and they wanted to pay low prices for that. That's, it's completely turned on its head with the millennial consumer. I do think that we are going to see more and more restaurants. I think I think the statistic that I that I just saw was that twenty two thousand new restaurants opened up last year across the country. We are competing for uh, traffic like nothing that I've ever seen before. And so there's in the in the restaurant industry, whether it's in the fine dining, casual, fast casual, family, um, we are competing with two things right now, and that is one is traffic is our enemy, right? Because traffic is down across the board uh, and, and people are making it up on price, right? So traffic is first. And then the availability of options through third-party delivery is, is 10 times what it was a couple of years ago. So when you have those two things, that, that's bringing down the sales of your restaurant. And so what happens to the, to the P&L, what happens to the middle of that P&L is very different today than what it was five years ago. There's there's incremental costs, and the top line is eroding because of third-party delivery. So 
it's going to be interesting to see what the next five years brings. I think you'll see a lot more closures of restaurants than you normally did because there's going to be a lot of trial with smaller spaces. Um, and we're going to see what happens to landlords. If you have a restaurant today in a mall in America, you're, you're dying a slow death right now. And so, and so, and so what is that mall, mall landlord or a mall developer going to do with, in some cases, is 100,000 square feet of restaurant space in their mall? You know, those people are going to walk away from those leases. And that coupled with the big box retailers of JCPenney and Sears and Macy's closing their doors are making the mall non-existent. Can you elaborate a little bit when you said traffic is our enemy? Explain that a little more for our audience. When you think about um, how you measure your your sales and your profitability of the restaurant, we, we, we live and die based on comp sales or comparable sales over the same time the prior year. Comps today are slightly positive, but they're, but they're positive because most people have taken a price increase in the last year. Traffic is negative. So everyone's traffic is down. So you're serving less guests, but you're taking more money out of the guest pocket that are coming in. So net, net, you're, you might be slightly positive. Traffic is down because there's so many more options, both in the brick and mortar scene and in the third party delivery scene. And the consumer has so many more choices and they're eating from restaurants they would have never eaten from a year ago. So that you've lost that customer that may have come to your restaurant three times a month. They might be coming to your restaurant two times a month. And if all your customers are doing that, your traffic is negative compared to last year. Paul, do you necessarily think that high tech means uh, flies in the face of, does it mean low touch or can you have both? I think that's going to evolve. I think right now it means, I think today the amount of technology in the restaurant does mean less touch um, because we see that happening. Um, but I have to believe that that will also continue to evolve over time. Listen, I have a restaurant that's under construction right now in downtown Chicago that I'm going to open up in August and it's going to have no seats and we're not going to take any cash. And there's lots of, there's lots of press, good and bad around this cash thing. Um, but I, but I want to see, uh, what happens because in, in, in any restaurant there's theft, Right. Every every restaurant has some level of theft. Sometimes it's ten percent. Sometimes it's two percent. If you eliminate cash, you eliminate theft. You also eliminate the cost of the Brinks truck and the change order and the deposits with the bank and and all of those things that wrap themselves around this thing called cash. So it's going to be interesting for me to see if I can do the volume I need based on the rent that I've signed up for to have no seats and no cash. So am I alienating customers? I don't know that yet, but I'm going to figure that out because as a franchisor, I feel like I have an obligation to solve for that. So when the first franchisee in an urban environment says, what do you think about no cash, no seats? I'll have an answer for that. Paul, you've got some uh, wonderful experience uh, coming up through the ranks. And I know that your first jobs actually were in the on-site marketplace um, through, I think it was Marriott, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, I think you're your dad's catering business, I think, kind of it really started you off as a restaurateur. But um, I wanted to ask you, now that you've got a number of really big positions under your belt, what, if anything, has surprised you about what you're seeing at NAFNAF in terms of um, hiring, uh, in terms of the types of food they're offering there, and you know where you actually see your concept going in the next year or two? 
Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge we have today is is um, we're, we're sub three percent unemployment, and so the 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 population of employees that used to be out there um, is no longer there. Uh, the the three percent that uh, unemployment we have maybe are not the employable three percent, and so when you have um, turnover, like the restaurant industry used to be, you know, if you had 60% turnover, that was a phenomenal number. And now we're, now we're hearing 200% turnover in a 12 month period with your hourly employees, which means you're turning the entire staff over twice uh, in a, in a two year period. Think of, think about the training costs, think about the recruiting costs. So for us in this thing we call fast casual, our average restaurant has about 25 employees on the schedule and we can't find enough people to work today in our restaurants. So we're always, we're always man down. And that's, that's a challenge because that, that, that speaks to the quality of service we can provide. That's not going to stop anytime soon because that unemployment rate is not changing. And so everybody is fighting that. And as more and more restaurants pile on with new concepts, the opportunity to hire the best Everybody wants to hire the best, right? No one's out there saying, I want the worst employee I can find. Nobody says that. We want the best. <laughs> right. And when the best get all used up, uh, you find yourself making some, some decisions that you would have never made 15 years ago when, when, you, when you were striving for the best. Do you have any special training that you feel your employees need because of the nature of your cuisine? Or have you found it's pretty much what you normally go through it with training? No, it's because our core products are all handmade in the restaurant. I mean, you, and, and we have a full bakery in every restaurant. It's it's not like you can tap the cashier on the shoulder and say, hey, Johnny, do me a favor, go make pita, right? Pita is a science. And if you don't follow the recipes and you don't make sure that the water is 45 degrees, the pita goes from an unbelievably craveable, beautiful product that no one can replicate to garbage very, very quickly. And so when you think about our pita and our shawarma and our falafel, there's a lot of training. There's two weeks of training that go into our bakers and our uh, falafel makers before we even let them work on a shift because the, we're, we're so proud of those products. Remember, we put Sahar, our founder, on a pedestal. We're not going to let just anybody make that shawarma or that pita or that falafel. We're going to make sure those people are trained. Sure. Yeah. And, that, and I know that takes time and, and dedication. And money. <laughs> and money, of course. Absolutely, of course. Of course. So as you think about, you know, the future of franchising, are, are you thinking that, um, uh, again, delivery is uh, going to maybe change your plans that you originally had when you took over at NAFNAF? Or uh, are you still uh, on plan? No, I think we're still on plan. I still believe that franchising is a solid business model. Um, there are plenty of high net worth, um, well-capitalized, great experienced franchisees out there that are looking for the new best thing um, and the new, the new thing to diversify their portfolio. I think we fit into that decision uh, matrix, if you will. And, that's, and those are the kinds of people that um, we are attracting today. We are attracting people that have been in the Taco Bell system or the Buffalo Wild Wings system or the Dunkin' Donuts system or the Five Guys system for years. Um, and they may be seeing trends in their brands that, that are causing them to say, what is this going to be like in 10 years? 
And so if we have these millennials that are, that are eventually going to mature and they're eventually going to have children, you would think that these millennials would teach their children how they grew up through the, through the restaurant industry. And so we've got to be prepared to be that next brand for this next round of, of evolution. And let's, you mentioned that uh, you, we have Generation Z, I guess, is the current du jour um, <laughs> uh, demographic, if you will. And obviously your appeal is there. What steps do you take to say, we know that we're going to obviously have a product that will appeal to future generations who may or may not understand the concept very well. I think part of that strategy is how do we get our food in more mounts um, every year? And so that happens a few ways. One, we, we're going to grow numbers of stores across the country with franchising. Our goal is to have 200 open stores um, by 2022. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot and fast growth. The other way we're going to do that is we're going to get our brand into the mouths of the youth. So you start, like we talked about with Chartwells and Compass Group, we get this brand on 2030 of the largest campuses. Now you're starting to get the 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds that love the food, but it's not available in their hometown yet. And so they grow up on that food in college. They become a loyal fan of it. And so as the brand grows and we come to their hometown, they're already big fans of what your product is. Our product is craveable if we can get it in the mouths of, of, of newbies. Uh, we, we, get loyal, we, we make loyal fans very, very quickly. So airports are going to help that. Higher education is going to help that. And then the franchising platform across the country is going to help that. That's the strategy. Do you feel that um, what's going on in the marketplace has kind of redefined these terms? Like what is a fast casual restaurant? What is a fine dining restaurant? What is a casual restaurant when you almost, you know, you can get fine dining out of a food truck now? Uh, I'm just wondering, has this also disrupted what we formally know as those concepts? And are we all going to be kind of rolled into one thing that just says, hey, I'm a, I'm a restaurant and I'm a fast casual, I'm a fine dining, I'm a casual. Do you see that happening uh, going forward? I think you will start to see an evolution of what we call different types of restaurants. And I think that that will be more based on the service style and the decor than it is the food, right? Because I, I'm seeing it today. There are some very fine restaurants in Chicago um, that I think are gorgeous and the service is amazing, but they serve a falafel that is not doesn't even come close to what my falafel is and I'm a fast casual restaurant. So there, so there, there's a, there's a, you can, you can draw that picture in your mind's eye um, of a beautiful restaurant with great service and average food, right? So when you say the word fine dining or casual dining, I think that as, as the millennials grow and the millennials have kids, those populations of people will use those same terms where you and I think about that in relation to the food, they will think about that in relation to the environment and the service. Okay. And you equate service style with the word experience, uh, the, the so-called, you know, the restaurant experience. I do. You do. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I do because, because a lot of them talk in the, in the, 
in the nomenclature, it's about um, how fast you can eat, right? So casual dining is a casual atmosphere. Fast food is fast. Fast casual talks about the speed with a higher quality of food. And now you're starting to see comments like fine, fast, casual. (laughs) I think Technomic will invent a new term every year for the next five years, and it will be so confusing. (laughs) But I think it's important to remember that only us in the industry really use those terms and know what they mean. It's, it's um, It's not like my wife or my children say, I think we should have casual dining tonight for dinner. Or I think I'm in the mood for fine dining. That's that. Those words are only used, I believe, within the industry, not the that, not the actual consumer base. You know what? That sounds like a great uh, subject for a future podcast with you, because I definitely would like to explore that uh, with you, Paul. Sure. So thank you, Paul, so much. You uh, you covered so many wide ranging topics in this discussion. I, I really uh, thank you for joining us here on. Episode 5 of Fast Casual Insider. Our conversation with you today was full of actionable advice for fast casual operators looking to grow. Paul D'Amico, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite service or find us at restaurant.org forward slash podcasts. This episode was produced by Dante32.